All right, everyone, let's do this. How are you? Are you good? You should be good. It's Friday. Unless you got to work tonight then or this weekend. And it probably sucks for you. But anyway, while you're working, you should check this podcast out. Uh, Welcome to this week's episode of our podcast. It's called Is Breakfast Included? If you're new here, bienvenidos. That means welcome. On the show today, Paul Chinook. Paul is an actor, producer, and writer of the movie February's Dog. You can find this movie on Tubi, Vudu, Apple TV, and Google Play, and I highly suggest you check it out. Paul and I had a great conversation. He told me how he got into the movie business, how he went about making this movie because it was made during the pandemic, and what he's got planned. He's got a couple of short films, a documentary. He now makes his home in Texas, but he, he's originally from Calgary, Alberta, which were this, which is where February's dog was filmed. Anyway, I had a lot of fun. It was good getting to know him. We've been talking a little over the last few weeks. We finally made some time to do this, and uh, it was a really cool conversation. Let's check it out. All right, man. You ready to do this? Let's do it. Yes, sir. All right. Tell everyone who you are, man. Hi, my name is Paul Chinook. I'm the writer, producer, and one of the actors in the film that was just recently released on Tubi called February's Dog. Right on. Uh, and the movie is based in Alberta, which is where you're yes, from, correct? Correct. Yeah. Born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Right on. Uh, tell me a little bit about the title. So the title February's Dog is kind of a mashup of a couple of two things. So February is the hardest month to make it through as a Canadian because it's cold, it's dark, it just doesn't seem like winter is going to end, and the black dog of depression. So February's Dog is, you know, making it through that the dog month of February. Okay, okay, yeah. I I I I thought after our conversation the other day, I started put it together, but I wanted to make sure. That I asked you before I assumed that's what it was about. Excellent. The, the whole month of February, I didn't know that about about that being the hardest month, you know, to get through in Canada. It is, man. Like sometimes winter will come in in October, November, and you know, you you want to have a white Christmas when you're in Canada and you live up north, and then come January. By the end of January, you're like, all right, we're kind of done with winter now, and. You know, sometimes winter doesn't end up in Canada till April, so like February. But at least the days start getting longer by about May. So in February, you know, the sun's going down at four in the afternoon. You get up to go to work; it's dark. You come, you start making your way home, and it's dark. And yeah, it's it's a tough month. Yeah, I did a tour with a band. I worked for a band out of Toronto. We did a tour, a Canadian tour. We were hitting places like Thunder Bay in the middle of winter, <laughs> and I'm like. Oh, Bernie, you got an authentic taste of Canada, sir. How'd anyone you like that? coming out and the place would be packed, you know? Right. So it was really cool. Yeah, I guess when you're from the South, when you get up to a Canadian winter, you must think it's a state of emergency. Nobody's going to go out. It's just another day for them. <laughs> I know. A few snowflakes fall in Texas and they shut down the city. Oh, yeah. Like I moved to Texas, Houston, five years ago. And it's funny because as a Canadian, we're all worried. Everybody called me. Oh, aren't you concerned living that close to the to the coast of hurricanes? And it's like, well, it doesn't seem like anybody else here is worried about them. But they're terrified about an, of an inch of snow. Right. And meanwhile, Canada's frozen and roads are solid ice for six months out of the year in Canada. Yeah, I was when I first started coming up here, I was hanging out with some friends one day. 
and we were walking around this where I live in Jersey City. And I was like, man, that smells like a tornado. And they started laughing at me. And then uh, my friend's husband called her and she's like, two tornadoes just touched down. Oh, wow. You got that nose for it. Yeah, we grew up in it right there in Tornado Alley, you know, so, you know, you kind of feel it's maybe not the smell of it, but I guess, you know, but Bernie, uh, I got a couple questions for you, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. What was the oddest Canadian Canadian city name that you went to that Um, sticks out in your mind? Well, Thunder Bay, uh, Banff. Oh, you've been to Banff. I've been to Banff. That's like a little, uh, I, I don't want to use the word hippie. But it's very like an artist community. Yeah, yeah. So I, I used to there. live twenty minutes outside of Banff. I'm very familiar with it. And uh, yeah, I remember getting out of the bus and the the uh, you, they can't see me, but like the the snow being this high, like right. Yeah. And it, but yeah, but, you know. So I mean, oddest name city or just oddest cities? Well, I'm just curious because there's like places called Moose Factory and Wawa, and uh, I've been to Wawa. there's a place in Newfoundland called Dild. Oh, you've been to Wawa, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> but not not Moose Factory. I've never been there. That's a cool band name. No. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, there's some pretty unique Canadian city names. I was just curious, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And what was? So... Did you get exposed to any like traditional Canadian food? Like, did you have any poutine, sir? Poutine. I, I realized that in Montreal, hot dogs are a big thing. Oh, and they, they, they do another, like, that's a whole nother level of hot dog, isn't it? It is. It is. But I, I did, when I first <laughs> started going to Canada, the poutine, I, I had never been out of the United States. Canada was the first place I went. And so when I first started doing this for a living, it was, uh, so I was looking for whatever I was familiar with here, but yeah, once the locals get you, you know, out, but poutine's a, a big favorite. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it fascinating? Like, I think we both grow up in Canada and the States thinking there's so many similarities till you actually go to that other country and realize, wow, this is actually another country. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And, and, and then you start exploring other countries and you realize, well, these are, we're all very much alike, but we all got our own things going on, you know? Yeah. So true. Yeah. And I, I used to love going to Canada. It's, uh, I, I haven't been, um, in i was there last summer for a day mm-hmm. it was in toronto but like i said i used to work for a band based out of toronto so everything we did started there so, which which band are you allowed to say yeah it was a band called death from above 1979 oh okay yeah so i i would fly to yyz start uh-huh. everything there and then sometimes fly there do a couple of days rehearsal and then come back to the U S or fly there, mm-hmm. and do, you know, and, and of course I work for Duran Duran and they have a big presence there. So they do. Yeah. I grew up on Duran Duran as a Canadian. Yes, sir. Oh, right on. I didn't, yeah. for some reason, I thought you were out on the West coast. Had I known you were in Houston, we were just in Houston, uh, not long ago. Yeah. I moved to Houston five years ago, originally from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So that's the Canadian province that's just North of Montana. And yeah, lived down pretty much 20 minutes out of Galveston down in Houston. I was blown away by how big Houston is when I first moved there. Yeah, <laughs> huge, right? Oh, I think it's at, at one point when I was growing up, it was the worst traffic in the U.S. was Houston, Texas. I could see that. I mean, I think they've done wonderful construction to alleviate that. But yeah, there's 8 million people trying to get somewhere in that city. Yeah. Why Texas? Houston in particular. Well, 
I got transferred down here from my regular line of work, which is uh, oil field work. Uh, I'm essentially a drilling rigs IT guy. That's where I'm at right now. And when I got transferred down here, it, it made more sense to me to be based out of Houston to get flights back to Canada in case I ever wanted to go visit because Houston's got an international airport. Mm-hmm. And growing up in Alberta, just north of Montana, being right in the middle of a continent, I'd never really lived anywhere near a large body of water. So I thought it'd be pretty novel to be living in a city that was on the coast. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're down near Galveston with Kima, I think you told me, right? Yeah, 10 minutes out of Kima. I'm like two minutes from the Johnson Space Center. So it's it's a lovely, lovely area to live in. Yeah. Before I did this, I, I worked for a theater a chain called Cinemark and I delivered movie prints in my route. This is before they all went to hard drive, digital hard uh-huh. drive. I would still take the reels. Uh-huh. And my route was all Houston. So I'd go all the way down into Webster and wow. come through uh, Pasadena, you know, back mm-hmm. to that. That's, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all digital now it's it's quite impressive yeah 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 so do you like it where you are i love it i really do i love it like texas is just such a amazing state there's so much history so much to see uh you know the difference in towns like you know you go from houston to san antonio to uh, midland and down to el paso and there's just such there's so diverse so different so incredible uh wonderful people a little hot in the summer but yeah no being you guys are having record heat right now right yeah and it uh it doesn't go away it just gets dark (laughs) i was in vegas last summer uh and i was walking back to my hotel at midnight and it was 105 wow at midnight so i don't i don't miss the texas summers but i mean it gets hot here where i'm living now too just Uh not as hot yeah yeah, it's something else, the Texas heat, yeah. So a guy in your industry, how do you get involved in the movie business? It's an interesting story. I didn't really mean to. So I guess it'd be about 10 years ago now, uh, when I was living in Calgary, there was a fellow that lived down the street from me that was making a pilot for a project that he was working on. And I had a 66 Mustang at the time. And when he found out about that, he wanted to use it for some burnouts and some other scenes for his, his project he was working on. So I said, yeah, sure. And I went there for the day. and. We did some burnouts and improvised some lines and shot some scenes. And one of his friends, Angela, walked up to me afterwards and said, hey, you're really good at this. How come I've never seen you on set before? And I said, well, you're too kind. I have no idea what I'm doing. So she said, well, if you want to give it a whirl, here's my agent's phone number. So I got in touch with Carla Brown at Platinum Talent in Calgary. And she gave me a a chance. And I, uh, I was incredibly lucky. The first year that I even started as a background actor, I was on uh Hell on Wheels, another program out of Canada called Young Drunk Punk that was a lot of fun with uh, Bruce McCullough from Kids in the Hall. I don't know if they ever really caught on down here, but uh, Kids in the Hall was huge in Canada when I grew up. So getting to be on TV with him was really cool. I'm crushing yeah, Exactly. I crush you. I crush you. <laughs> you know, yes, sir, Bernie. I, when you started doing that, I'm like, what's that? Then when you said that, oh. Yeah. Yeah, they caught on for a bit down here. They had a, a show on HBO. Awesome, and, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, yeah. So I, I got really lucky in my first year, and then I, I just it kind of took off from there. I mean, it's, it's such a magical experience to be able to get on set and create with other people. And uh, 
you know, I think what really hooked me, Bernie, was my first day on Hell on Wheels. When you walk into a town that's from the 1800s, it's all built like you go into the saloon and there's a real saloon in there. Right. And they dress everybody from the 1800s. And it's as close to time travel as I think you can actually pull off right now. And man, that just had me hooked. Like that was just so much fun. So I just kept thinking, well, you know, what can I do next? And being in Canada, in Calgary, we're really blessed with how many productions come there. But Mm -hmm. one of the problems that I see is that, and I get it now because I produced one of my own films, February's Dog, is that productions do all their casting before they come there for the most part. So they do auditions in the local region, but they've already cast that position that you're auditioning for. Now, in my opinion, I'm kind of guessing, but you have to beat the person that already has the job to get the job. So me and a lot of my friends would do all these auditions. We would watch the TV show or movie that we auditioned for and to be something, somebody that we're, we've never seen before that got the role. And that's when I started to figure it out. And so I thought, well, if we just start shooting our own stuff, nobody can say no to us. All right. So he's like, take it into our own hands. Yeah. <laughs> Sounded simple at the time. <laughs> it always does, right? Right. I just do if you this just on say my own. only before you do anything, it sounds easy. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, when did you start writing February's Dog? Was this mm. your first production? Uh, it's the second one I wrote, but the first one that we did uh, get produced. Yes, okay. sir. So I wrote it, I guess, five years ago. And it was kind of a blessing and a curse because we got the first, we got the second round of filming done um, just the December before COVID rocked the planet. So it, why I say it was a blessing and a curse was it made editing incredibly difficult because I couldn't just go back up to Canada to sit in a room with my editor once borders started getting closed and uh, you know, all the uh, quarantines were happening. So we had to try to figure out a way to do remote editing, which I I think we did a really good job of. And, you know, we didn't really have a, any kind of roadmap because nobody really had to do that type of editing before, you know, usually you'd sit in a room and watch footage and go, yeah, that works. That doesn't. Whereas he'd have to put together whole segments and send them over to me and, I didn't have the raw footage, so I just had to, you know, ask questions and guess. And we pieced a, a pretty solid film together, I think. I think my editor, Jordy Day, did a wonderful job. And and then a blessing part of the COVID came when I was actually able to attend the Cannes Marche de Film and some of the other big markets because they were all virtual and online. And, you know, going into, into them as a rookie who didn't know anybody, didn't know anything, it really put me on a whole lot more of a even playing field with the 20-year veterans in the industry when everybody's trying to figure out how these Zoom meetings work. Everybody's trying to figure out how this new virtual meeting for a, a market was working. So where I probably wouldn't have got, you know, a, a meeting with some of these people before, they were scrambling and out of their element. So that's kind of where the blessing came in and how we kind of caught a little bit of a a, a win there. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was the one of the there was a lot of uh cons during the pandemic, but one of the the pros was that it did. It put everyone on the same playing field. Didn't matter how famous you were or how not famous you were, everybody was was doing the same thing. Yeah, and I think now that we've come through the other side of it because so many people consume so much entertainment that it is a bit of a blessing for us indie filmmakers because there's uh there's a, a market for what we do now, maybe a bit of a stronger market since so many people, I mean, when you don't go to work and, you know, everything else has been taken from you, how many people just sat there, like Netflix and streaming went up by how much, right? Yeah. Yeah. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, all the majors, like they were really burning through content. So, yeah. um, you know, when you get to the end of Netflix or the end of Hulu, you're like, now what? So 
that's where guys like myself come in. Right on, man. Well, I watched the movie twice, and and your editor did do it. The, I to me, I I love film and I love watching independent movies. A lot of times, when you find an independent movie like yours, they didn't trim the fat. And they want to get everything in. It's almost like a new band going in the studio. Like, no, I need to put this three minute intro before the song. The producer's telling them, like, no, you only got three minutes to get your message across. And and that's what I I liked about your movie because I I went into it completely just not knowing what it was about. I watched your trailer, and I liked it, so I went into it just open minded. And I was like, wow, that that movie kept me into it the whole time. There was no like, well, let me check my phone because they're just talking way too much. This conversation's going in it, nowhere. You know, it, it just kept me kept me going on it, man. Um, so I like that about it. Uh what I think is the message of the movie really hit close to home for me. You know, that that you got three main I don't want to give it away, but we'll talk, we have to talk about it. You got three main characters yeah. kind of going through their all their own existential crisis and they're all handling it different you know mm -hmm. it was any of that like from experience or was any of that like did you is it all just come out of your imagination uh it, it's a lot from experience so there's a lot of personal stories of mine and really close friends of mine all kind of woven together uh through different characters so while it's not actually uh I hope I get this right, autobibliographical of any one particular person. There's a lot of truth in there. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. And it was also um, quite an honor to be able to go back to friends of mine that had incredibly challenging points in their life and said, I didn't forget. And I actually put it in a film. Mm -hmm. And a few of my friends actually said thank you for that because it really helped uh, give them closure on it to see that they've, you know, to be able to look, watch a movie and recognize that they lived parts of the, that film and to see that they've made it to the other side and that they don't feel that, or they don't see those issues in their life anymore. Yeah. So it was, it was quite an honor to be able to offer that to friends of mine Yeah, to include them, even, even little segments of their life. And they could see that. And yeah, right off the bat, when the movie starts, you, you meet the two main characters, Nigel and Dale, who you play. I'm, I'm going to give that away. Uh, and <laughs> yes, and sir. Everyone, I think, who's been in that industry or industry like that has has had that day where you're just going about your, your day and then you get the news. Hey, come into the office. We have to talk to you. And you see right off the bat how Dale handles it. Like, oh, I'm getting a two month vacation. You know, Nigel's handling it in a different way, but sees the, you know, sees the silver lining, but is still kind of very cautious. And then and then you meet your third character, uh, I believe his name is Jed, who comes out of nowhere and you you don't even know what he's going through till that scene, you know, and uh, the way you kind of told that story, it's like it's it's different. But I'll tell you what it's like, like when I went to see From Dusk Till Dawn the first time at the movie theater, the trailer didn't tell you there was fucking vampires. You know? <laughs> so when that happens in the movie, you're like, what's going on? So, yeah, so you see this guy, Jed, who's just, just happy-go-lucky guy. And then mm -hmm. his life is just full of turmoil that he's just not telling anyone. He's just buried, yeah. you know? So, I, I mean, I like the way you told those stories, man, and how they all handled what was going on in their lives differently. And, you know, ultimately. I really appreciate that. And I think we got a lot of gold because my style 
being the writer and producer of it, when I was casting for the different roles, uh, was to tell people straight up front, look, just because I wrote it doesn't mean it ha- you have to recite it word for word. Like, take the character and make it yours. Like, I explained to people, my view of it is, as a writer, is I'm like the architect. Like, I design a building and I design a room. And then if we give you the job of the accountant in that room, man, I'm not there to decorate your office. That's your job. You know what I mean? So you tell me where that desk goes. You tell me what's going to be on that desk. I'm just telling you, here's how you fit into the organization. Uh, Or in a film, that's what your character does. And this is what your character has to achieve throughout the story. And I would have to say 70% of the time, the recommendations from the actors of, I think my character would do this or that that my eyes were really open to the fact that when you're working in a creative capacity, you have to leave the room for others to create. You can't, I don't, unless, I mean, you're redoing Abraham Lincoln, given the, the uh, a famous speech that we all know, you, yeah. you don't really have artistic license in that capacity, but you have to give people room to explore that character and see what works for them. And I think that's why we really got a, a lot, why you see such a genuine connection with a lot of those actors with their characters. Yeah. And were these were these friends of yours like from the same community acting community or did you guys have people come in and audition? You know, I basically I offered the the role to everybody. So it was when you've got a small production, it's incredibly expensive and time consuming to do some of those things. And when I originally set out to get the film done, I wanted to work with a bunch of friends of mine and I, I wanted to offer friends of mine that I worked with in the film industry in Calgary, a chance to show that they had the potential to, you know, earn more than just a background role or earn more than just three lines as a, you know, a cop walking through or something like that, that we do have the ability to actually deliver a powerful movie. So, and I think everybody did, everybody gave their best and I'm incredibly honored that we all managed to pull that off. Yeah. Like I said, I don't, I don't know what your budget was for the movie, but it's a really good movie. What, what message are you trying to get out with this movie with the film we're trying to get out the message uh of mental health and connecting with the others that you know i think without giving the film away uh, actually what i can say is when we did our test audience so after we got our first draft of the film done and it was still during covid we brought together i think it was 30 or 40 people to do a test audience of the film and the largest comment we got back was, I'll have to get back to you. I have to call my mom. I have to get back to you. I have to call, you know, so-and-so that, and that was really what I was aiming to accomplish was to kind of gently rock people or aggressively rock people out of their rut in life and go, we're important to other people. Like, are, are we connecting with each other enough? Do we care enough about the other person? Or are we just assuming that, you know, Bernie's always in good spirits and nobody's checking on you? Yeah. You know, so that's kind of the message. And I, I was really happy to hear that, that, in our test audience that really resonated that the, the real message is we do way better when we're connected with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why in our modern society with all the luxuries, conveniences and technology that we have, the depression's never been higher is because we're leaning more on our devices than we are the people around us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think of all the characters, I mean, Dale is my favorite because everybody knows Dale. Everybody has a friend like Dale, you know, like you said. Yeah, he's a golden retriever as a human, right? <laughs> yeah, no, nobody's worried about him. Like, oh, that's just yeah. Dale. You know, that's that's what he's gonna do, you know. So I I if that's the if that if that's what you were trying to portray, you know, that facade, mm-hmm. then then you, you really hit the nail on the head with him, man. You know. 
I appreciate it. And that's kind of what we were trying to portray um, with Dale was the guy who just, no matter what's going on, says, I'm fine, you know, and, and doesn't really let anybody in. You know, I, I guess you got to watch the film to find out why Dale's like that. But uh, it's and, and what that can potentially do to a person. But it's uh, I, I spoke with some different major mental health uh, organizations in Canada to make sure that we didn't uh, stereotype anything, misportray any kind of depression. And what I, what they shared with me, I thought was incredibly powerful was that there's three points that make up everybody's mental health in the world. And those three points are lifestyle, uh, counseling and prescriptions. And it's going to vary person to person and situation to situation, which one of those three points is most important to you. But like they told me was that for a lot of men, that point of lifestyle is very important. And when I listen to other podcasts, uh, hearing a lot of military veterans say that one of the most debilitating things for uh, veterans is when they get out of the military that they don't have a mission anymore. That that's kind of how a lot of guys feel. Like my dad, for instance, isn't a counseling person. You can sit him on a couch and I, I don't think it's ever going to do him any good. What you need to do sometimes is grab a person like my dad, shake him by the shoulders and go, you know, when was the last time you worked out? When was the last time you had a regimented life? When was the last time you were, you know, you, you got out there and accomplished stuff? And for some people, that's how you get them back on track. So it's it's a very what I learned about mental health is it's a it's an even more complex conversation than uh, a lot of us understand on the surface. And do you think that message will come out? Uh, I hope so. If if not, at least the conversation about it, about, you know, is, is Bernie doing okay? Like, have I talked to him enough? Is Paul doing okay? And, and just like what we had with our test audiences is have people watch the film and go, I don't want that to happen to people in my life. But uh, man, yeah. uh, so you haven't been doing this long. You haven't been in this movie racket very long. Uh, nope. <laughs> and it was, it was really funny. So, uh, most of us in the film, that was our first speaking role. So it was, a uh, friends of mine that had a production company in Calgary that agreed to film February's dog for us. And I think it was day two, we were on set, we were in between scenes, turning things around and, uh, they, they were asking us, Oh, you know, well, what else have you been in with me and Quinn who plays my wife, Emily? And we both kind of looked at each other. We're like, nothing. They know me because they're friends of mine. They're like, well, that's a lie. We know you've been on commercials before. I'm like, yeah, but I've never had a line before. The Both their jaws just hit the floor. They're like, you mean to tell me you've never had a line in a film before? And you just wrote a script that you're going to star in. I'm like, yeah, is it going okay? They're like, yeah, but uh, I think a lot of it came down to the fact that um, given the opportunity we all worked really hard. Like we all did a lot of rehearsals over the phone because I was in Houston. And by the time we got to set, we were all very familiar with who each other had made for the character that they were going to play. We were very familiar with each other's timing. And I think that it was all that extra work that we put in that really made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. How like there was an honest connection. What's that? How long did it take to film the movie? So it took a total of two weeks. Uh, we did it over two segments to make it look like it plays out over 18 months. And we got incredibly lucky with the weather in Canada that we got snow at the right time. We got sunshine at the right time and that the weather participated fantastically for us. Two weeks, man. That's, that's really, that's, I guess that's indie filmmaking. It is like one of the biggest differences between indie filmmaking and the big studios is just how much time you have. Uh, money equals time. The more money you have, the more time you have. So with indie filmmaking, from my experience, you 
you really got to rehearse. You really got to master your planning down so that when you do get to set, because it's expensive when you've got a crew standing around, if, if you're still trying to hash out some details, like you yeah. want to get as much of that ironed out as, as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on now? I've got two short films and a documentary I'm currently working on. So mm-hmm. we're going to shoot one more short film up in Canada titled uh, hello baby girl. And, uh, a short film in Texas uh, that's titled Ultima Decepcio, and then a, a documentary that we're putting together that I'm putting together as well. So, the reason why I'm doing two short films after a feature is while I'm quite impressed with how the film turned out artistically, I still have a lot to learn business wise. There's, I mean, it, it's a whole industry to itself. So, what I'd like to do is get a couple of short films under my belt, get a little bit more networking, a little bit better understanding of some of the business things so that we flow through our production better and aim to aim for a two to $5 million budget feature afterwards. So build up some of that credibility required to take that step. It's kind of what I learned that that's where you're going to be able to two to $5 million budget film is where you're going to start to have the potential to earn some significant cash. Yeah. Do you have an idea for that? that I've got seven films written in four TV series. So yeah, it is just a matter of getting the uh getting the money on board. Right on. So like I said, you haven't been doing this long and now you've just kind of fallen into it. Do you feel like this was your calling all along when you drove your uh, Mustang up on the set that day? I didn't know it that day, but I discovered that I knew I loved being on set as soon as I was on Hell on Wheels. Mm-hmm. That I mean it's just like my regular job in the oil field I have right now that they're long grueling days, but you, you just can't even pull the smile off my face. I mean, it's just, it's just such a cool experience to be able to get out there and create and see the, the sparkle in other people's eyes as they're delivering lines that they never thought they'd master or, you know, drawing out the raw emotion to pull off a scene once they're done and to see that look of satisfaction, you know, probably quite similar to music wise when you see a, you know, a guitar player play an incredibly challenging riff for the first yeah. time and just go, my God, I did it. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's, we're very blessed to be able to work even part-time on creative endeavors. Exactly. Right. I, I always say it's a privilege to do what we do. It, it was, it's incredibly challenging getting your first film done. And when I got to the film uh, festivals that we did get into, you start to realize that you're not special, that it takes like a series of miracles to even get any film done. Yeah. Uh, so, but when you're doing it on your own, you think, oh my God, you know, we must've done something wrong because everything was challenging. And, and then, you know, you listen to other podcasts of big producers like, uh, uh, can I mention another podcast on your show? Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. So, uh, Todd Garner. Oh, I got that right. The producer's guide with yeah, Todd Garner. And when you listen to him and like, he was, uh, a co-president at Disney. And when you hear that it took small chain of miracles to even get a big studio production done that I was like, Oh, okay. So this is just how this industry works. Right? I'm not special. It's, it's incredibly challenging, but you know, when you get it done, right, there's, it's such a rewarding feeling. What advice would you give to someone that, that if someone came up to you is like, man, I lo- I loved your movie. How can I make a movie? The first or advice I, I would yeah, tell know. them is take your time. I think the biggest mistake most if not all first-time filmmakers make is rushing to get to set that you just you're just like everything seems like an obstacle to get to set and that's why i'm doing two short films is to make sure that we get all those details right because 
we got so incredibly lucky. Like you, you can accidentally be laying out a, a minefield in front of yourself. Um, if you don't take your time and learn all the steps correctly. So that's what I would tell any first time filmmaker is take your time. You know, when you write a script, make sure that you get it edited. You know, you don't necessarily need to take somebody's full advice on a script, but be open and willing to hear what people have to say to help make your film better. Uh, there's all kinds of wonderful services out there that'll edit scripts for reasonable fees as well, mm -hmm. where you can get in touch with Hollywood experts to, you know, to tailor your script for what the industry wants to see out of a script. Really, the biggest thing is just take your time. And crappy audio is not a style. When you get to set, do not, you know, get all focused on the camera and forget about the audio. Like yeah. you can get away with shaky cam. You can get away with your, your image being blurred for a second. You cannot get away for with having bad audio. How much did your, um, after editing, how much did your original film, your original screenplay change? We didn't. So from what we shot to what we edited? Yeah. Uh, not too much. We didn't, being an indie film, we didn't give ourselves like the equivalent of, you know, uh, three different alternative endings or three different paths that the story could follow. We knew we had to stay rather tight to the script. And just to loop back to one of your other previous comments slash questions about trimming the fat off, I got to I gotta say that that was Jordy Day at Night School Films, my editor. Uh, wonderful editor and it was great the back and forth we had through the editing of uh, editors want to cut like uh, i joke with jordy i'm like the best film that every editor's favorite film is opening credits closing credits done perfect right nailed it right got in got out done right, right. so it, it was that working process of him wanting to you know keep things tight and me trying to say it's a drama let's let him breathe that i think we really established that balance yeah. And by respecting each other, like, you know, there was sometimes Jordy says, look, we just got to do it this way. And, you know, while I'm the boss, you know, I was like, okay, well, you know, you laid out a good argument. Absolutely. Like we had to cut some scenes that I would have liked to see in, but you know, if he said we had a technical issue with this, or I just don't think it, I just don't think it really has a purpose in the film. I was like, okay. Right. Is that so, hard for you as a, uh, as the writer, is that hard for you to, to go, I really like that, but it gets easier the more you do it. I mean, I think again, back to advice to other filmmakers is another one is don't take anything personal. Nobody's saying that you're a bad writer. Nobody's saying that you screwed up when they've got suggestions. It's the exact opposite. I think the better job you do, the more excited people are to contribute to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you get people around you going, Oh yeah, yeah, that's great. That's a bad sign. Yeah. When, it, when people are like, Hey, I really like this film the script but what if we did this and what if we did that and what if we brought this into it those are great things these aren't people trying to you know put their stamp on your film or so on and so forth it's people trying to contribute to something they see as our has a lot of potential and another bit of advice that i would give to other filmmakers is don't try to stick to a formula when you're writing like when you're writing don't think that it has to neatly fall into three acts and you have to have certain type of pacing there's there's no necessary there's no real laws when it comes to an artistic endeavor there's rules you know and as you get better you'll understand those rules but that doesn't mean that your story that you're trying to tell has to follow a specific set of rules uh, because some of the advice that i'd stumbled upon early was oh you're, you're not following such and such a, a model like that's what people want to see and i'm like and, and i just had this suspicion and this instinct that don't do that because people sniff that out they see that it's manufactured. They see that it's fabricated. Like, you know, when we think of great bands, like, well, who sounds like Tool? 
So does that mean Tool's wrong with the type of music that they played because nobody else does it? You yeah. know what I mean? Who makes a movie like Tarantino? Does that make it, his artistic style of making films wrong? So I would tell other people, you know, take what people say, but when it comes to trying to, you know, have it follow a specific uh, system, I wouldn't focus on that. Right on, man. That That's great advice, you know. That's, it's that's storytelling. Not every story has to have a bird and a dog in it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so you got these two short films that you're going to work on. Are are you using the same crew and cast? And, and you know, we'll be using a few for the one up in Alberta, uh, and it'll have to be all new ones for Texas. Mm-hmm. So um, I, again, with the two short films, that's another reason why I wanted to do, do two short films. Is to I haven't made a film in America, so I want to get familiar with that. And, and I want to get stronger at being a Canadian filmmaker. There's there's pros and cons to both. I mean, one of the benefits of Canada being a socialist country is how much uh, government money is available to filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And being a Canadian, even though I've lived in the Texas for five years now, I think it's important for Canadians to continue to control our own story making. It's very easy with us being right next door to the United States of America for our culture to kind of just get overwashed by how uh, large the American entertainment industry is. So I like to try to ins- be the inspiration for other Canadian filmmakers to get out there and go, oh, you know, I can actually do it. And there is an opportunity. And we do have a unique story. Where can people find you online and anything about the movie online? So the film is currently playing on Tubi as well as Vudu. Uh, and I think you can also buy and rent it on Apple TV and Google Pay. Google Play. Yeah. And where, where can people find out about you? Uh, I do have an IMDb page. I also have, uh, there's a f- website for February's Dog to learn more about the film and some of the cool things behind the scenes at February'sDog.com. And then uh, I also have my website for my production company with some of the uh, synopsis for upcoming scripts that I've got written at LuckTorPictures.com, L-U-C-T-O-R Pictures.com. It's Latin for struggle is what LuckTor is. And then our our logo is Atlas holding the planet up, and that's symbolic of embrace the struggle night and day, because it's a struggle sometimes getting an artistic venture done, isn't it? Oh man, totally. So, <laughs> I, I, no matter how small, it, it's yeah. it's a struggle. I saw it on your face right away as soon as I said that. You're like, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it feels like herding cats. You're like, please, just general direction, please. Right, herding cats. <laughs> uh well man i do paul i do appreciate your time man i appreciate i know we've we've we uh we tried to do this a couple of times but thank you so much um for doing this i really appreciate it and uh it was my pleasure thank you so much bernie oh man no you know i you know thank you anytime anyone takes time out of their day to do this i i really appreciate it so especially to talk about something that i thank you so much for the genuinely enjoyed Awesome. Well, I really appreciate hearing that. I'm sure all the rest of the cast and crew are going to love hearing that you enjoyed it as well. Right on, man. Was there anything else you want to want to promote while you're here? No, just a film, really. Yeah, February's Dog. It's on Tubi TV. Uh, Like I said, Apple TV, Vudu, and Google TV, Google Play, Google TV, Google something. Right on. (laughs) Well, I I, if you've listened to the podcast, you might know what my last question is going to be. It's called "Is Breakfast Included?" And if we were having breakfast, what would you have? Like just regular breakfast? Like if like what do I make every day, or just anything? Dream breakfast. Your dream breakfast. Let's go with that. Your dream breakfast. Okay. Well, 
There's a little thing down in Texas that's jalapeno bacon. Got to have mm-hmm. jalapeno bacon at breakfast. Have you ever had that? The bacon down here that's comes with jalapeno sauce on it. Amazing. Yeah. Um, hollandaise eggs and hash browns. Pretty simple, but yeah, yeah. I'm you know I'm originally from just north of Houston, a town called Corsicana. I don't know if you've driven through there. So I know a person who's made to go through there. Yeah, <laughs> Stephanie, you connected us. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, if you're just from north of Houston, you'll have a better idea of where we're going to shoot Ultimate Deceptio, which is Huntsville. Yeah, yeah. I'm very Prison City. Yeah. Yeah. Prison City. (laughs) Wonderful town. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to, are any of the scenes going to feature the big Sam Houston statue? Man, that's an unlooked, overlooked gem of an idea. There's a potential. Yeah. There's a potential we could. Right on, man. Right on. Yeah. Well, Paul, the next time I'm down, I'll make a special trip. I'd love to meet you in person and take you to breakfast. Awesome, Bernie. I'd love that, man. And again, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your podcast. It's a lovely podcast. Thank you, man. It was good talking to you. You too, sir. All right. Bye. Paul Chinook. The movie is called February's Dog. Again, I highly suggest you check this movie out. It's really good. It's a really good movie. You can find out more about it at februarysdog.com. You can find out more about Paul at luckdoorpictures.com. Again, you can find the movie on Tubi, Vudu, Apple TV, and Google Play. Also, here it comes. You knew it was coming. Is breakfast.bigcartel.com. Go buy, order a shirt. Help us out. (laughs) All right, guys, I'm done. Have a great day. We'll talk to you next week.